Well, what a year it has been. And I think that certainly is an understatement, isn't it? But you know, the good news is that our year is not over yet. <laughs> and some of you are like, please, I kind of want this year to be over, right? But uh, boy, we have seen a lot happen this year. And uh, the other night I went out to dinner with uh, my wife Claudia and my oldest daughter Lauren, and we were reflecting on sort of this past year. I mean, we're only in mid-November, but it's about this time of year I think a lot of us start to to look back as we, we sort of draw near to the end of 2020 and, um, you know, with, with of course, uh, COVID dominating our year for many, many months, uh, just something so new and unique to us here in this country, so widespread, something that everybody in this country was affected by some way or another. Um, and now there is talk about a spike in cases and People are asking, are we going to be uh, looking at another lockdown or quarantine? And we're thinking back of what it was like the first time. And, you know, this year was so strange for us. And, and uh, we were reflecting on what it was like for us during our time of quarantine. And I, I probably mentioned this, but we had a couple of silver lining moments in there. You know, there's that, 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 uh, that word from God that says, uh, was remember Joseph that said what, uh, what you meant for evil, God meant for good, right? And so, um, you know, God does work uh, in mysterious ways, and he works through every situation. And so we, um, you know, we were in the midst of planning a marriage for my oldest daughter, Lauren, and her fiancé at the time, Ben. And uh, he came to live with us, and then the quarantine hit about two weeks later, and then all one by one, the rest of my kids came. And so we got to live with him for a few months and got to know about him. And it got to get to really get to know him in, uh, in a more intimate way. And I tell you, that could have gone one way or another, right? But it went really well, and we love him, and we're so glad that he is a part of the family. And there were other things. We, we played a, this game called Catan, if you ever played it. And it's this wonderful board game uh, where you're kind of setting up your own civilization. And uh, we loved it. We would play it so often, and uh, we would cook meals together. And so we try to... We try to have the fond memories, right? But now as we hear talk about, well, the spike in COVID cases and maybe there'll be another quarantine and, and I don't think we're all looking forward to that because we're thinking about all the great times we had, right? And no, even though there were some silver lining moments, we might not look forward to that, of course, but you remember we were quarantined to, to avoid being exposed to the virus, to be protected in a sense but what we sensed was kind of happening outside. I remember at the very beginning, we were kind of like, should we go outside? And I, If you were like us, when you went to the store and you came back, you were wiping down every item that you bought, cartons of milk and all that. Remember, we just didn't know all about how it was spread. And your Amazon packages, you were wiping down cardboard. And you just think back, you're like, man, is that where we're headed? But, you know, in a sense, we were we were being quarantined to be protected from something that was sort of happening outside our doors, this spreading virus. Well, today, where our scripture brings us in Genesis 6 through 8, it tells a story about a family who was, in effect, quarantined together for protection from what was going on outside their home, and they were quarantined for a little over a year what a year they had. So who am I talking about? I'm talking about Noah. Noah and the flood. One of the most familiar stories. If you grew up in church, it's one of the first ones you learn, and you probably heard it over and over again. 
in many different ways, learning about Noah and the ark that he built under God's direction to save himself, his family, and a lot of pets, by the way, that he brought on the boat with him uh, from the judgment of the Lord. And so today, we're going to be looking at that account in Genesis 6 through 8. You know, so their home was an ark, and the family was Noah, his wife, his sons, and his daughters-in-law, and a lot of, a lot of animals. And there was a lot going on inside that ark. But there was a lot happening outside the ark. And there was a worldwide flood. See, their lives were interrupted because of a virus. Did you know that? And that virus is called sin. And just like COVID, it was starting to spread and, and God said, I want to protect you. And so, We see from Genesis 1 through 5 that we've covered already, we see God creating, and we see the beauty and perfection of his creation, and of course, of humankind, of Adam and Eve, male and female, he created them. But then, of course, we see what happens in the garden, and the serpent, and the introduction of disobedience and sin into God's perfect plan and perfect world. And then we start to learn about the consequences of sin. Whenever there's disobedience, there are consequences. Parents, am I right? Yes, there is. But this is a story. It might not sound fun. It's Genesis 6 through 8. It's all about the flood. It's about judgment. But as God always does, he gives us a ray of hope. So the passage I'm going to focus on is Genesis 6, the first eight verses, 1 through 8. Uh, and that'll kind of be our jumping point off for the rest of the chapters. I won't be reading from the rest of it, but I'll be highlighting exactly what's going on. But, you know, uh, the, the Noah and his family, their life was interrupted because of this virus called sin. And it had spread so wide and with such devastating results affecting and infecting every person alive that God decided to bring judgment to stop its spread. And so in Genesis 1 to 5, we see how sin enters the picture and it begins to spread. Chapter 6 to 8, where we are in the Genesis story, is God bringing judgment in the form of a flood. You know, it really is the fall of a civilization. It's the fall of a civilization from the judgment of God. Researchers have said that throughout the course of world history, there have been between 20 to 25 civilizations, not countries and nations, but civilizations, right? In the the Bible, what do we think about, right? We think about the Romans, right? But people that came before them, the Greeks and who came before them, right? You had the Assyrians and, and you had different civilizations, About 20 to 25 civilizations, but each one has fallen and made way for the other. Do you ever think about that, the perspective of history? But what we are seeing here, in essence, with the coming judgment of the flood, is really the fall of a civilization, and it is because of sin. Do you agree with me that the Bible teaches us very clearly that the further that we get away from being obedient to God and His Word, the closer we get to the fall and destruction of our civilization, whatever that civilization may uh, may be defined as. And so I want to read for you now Genesis 6, 1-8. Again, it, it, it kind of gives us the jumping-off point. 
And then the rest of, of 6 in, in chapter 7 and 8, it gives a lot of detail, which I'm going to talk about a bit. I really encourage you, if you haven't read it in a while, go back and read those chapters. Because Moses, remember, as he's writing this to the nation of Israel, they're about to go into the promised land. He's writing the first five books of the Bible to remind them of who they are and their history. So they don't repeat it. Unfortunately, they don't listen and they repeat it. But he's reminding them about what God did and there is consequences to sin. And so um, Genesis 6, 7, and 8 gives a lot of detail about the flood, how high it was, how how wide a spread it was. It talks about the ark. Did you ever read in Genesis 7 and 8 about the measurements? God gives very specific details about how to build the ark. And then not only that, he gives measurements for the time. Very detailed measurements about how long it took, how long Noah lived, and then how long it took him to build the ark, and then what it looked like, how big it was, how many animals, all that story we're familiar with. Think about it, church. God is a God of order, and God is a God of details. But he's the same God then that gave Noah all those measurements for the ark, all the specific instructions about what kind and how many animals to bring on the ark, And even the days, how long it took, one after the other, for each part of that whole process to take. God gives very specific details. And we can believe him in the details, can't we? And and that's important for us to remember. So let's uh, let's read this. I'm going to read Genesis 6, 1 to 8. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to to them, The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in a man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That's the passage we're looking at. You know, if you're reading a book and you're seeing this story unfold, you see the foundations being built, you're meeting different characters, and you see... um, uh, you see this thing called sin enter in. There's a lot of drama and the story's just getting good. And all of a sudden you turn the page and it says, um, actually we're stopping the story. We're going to start all over again. In a sense, it's what God is doing. But you're going to see throughout just these, these eight verses how God shows us the, the spread of sin, the progression of sin, but a ray of hope to continue on. So the rest of 6 and chapter 7 and 8 are the account of the flood with a lot of details about the ark, the flood, and even the time that it took for everything to happen. Can I just, I'm going to rattle off a few quick facts about the flood. And these are things that are right in the scriptures, Aaron, so you can read them. And again, he gives a lot of details. 
And so you can do a lot of math and put things together, and that's how good God is. But um, Noah is from the 10th generation of Adam. So we met Adam, right, way back a few weeks ago. So we are at Noah, 10 generations. Okay, a long time. So uh, it says that he was 500 years old when he had a son. How about that? We talked all about that last week, the age of people, right, living so long before the flood. So he was 500 years old. He, he had a, a child, his first child. And then uh, he built an ark for the next hundred years. So at 500, God said, you're going to have a child. And he said, by the way, I want you to build this ark. And it took him about a hundred years. You realize that? Now, if you look at the size of it, you'd be like, wow, I can understand that. I'm sure he had help. He didn't do it on his own. He must have. I mean, it's conjecture. It doesn't say that. But he did have children. And, you know, we have children so they could help us around the house. How does that work out? Pretty good? And so he's probably like, come on, you can pick up a hammer. He's like, nah, I'm playing Xbox, you know. So he was, he built the ark from 500 till about he was 600 years old. And then God said, now it's time to get on the ark. So that was about the time frame for him. Uh, these chapters give much uh, detail about the measurements of the ark. Did you know that it's about less than half the size of the Titanic? Did you ever see the movie The Titanic? The ark is about less than half the size of the Titanic because God gives the measurements. And, of course, we know the measurements of the Titanic, so we can compare the two very clearly. It could hold, the ark could hold about thirty to 40,000 animals about the size of sheep. So some were smaller, some were bigger. And a lot of us think, man, how can you get you know two of every kind, all those animals? Well, with that size, knowing how big shipping containers are these days and how much can fit in shipping containers, we can estimate that about thirty to 40,000 animals about the size of sheep could have fit on the ark. You think God could do that? You think he knew what he was doing when he said, I want you to build the ark this high, this wide, this long with these dimensions? You think God knew that he was about to tell Adam to bring all these animals in? I think God knew what he was doing. That he was building an ark big enough for all of them. So there was plenty of room for all that God told him to bring into the ark. And uh, some of you may have been there, but there is this thing called the Ark Encounter in Kentucky. And uh, it is um, a life-sized replica. We have a picture of it. Uh, a picture of the ark. There it is. Some of you might have been there. So it is made to the specific dimensions uh, that are laid out in these chapters. Because if God gives the dimensions, well, we could build it. Pretty amazing, isn't it? I mean, give some perspective. You can see the water. You can see the size of the trees. That's pretty big. Now think about this. The Titanic was about twice that size. Pretty amazing. The feats of men. But this was the feet of men divinely inspired by God. So just take a look at that for a minute. We'll keep that up there for a minute. This uh, gets about one million visitors a year. Does it surprise you? that uh, there is that much interest in going to see what the ark would have looked like? It doesn't surprise me. And I bet you that number will continue to grow, won't it? Right? That the ark could be that big, and that God made it with plenty of, uh, of room. So then he tells us about the flood, and you can leave that picture there. And so there's the flood that comes. The rain fell for 40 days. It talks about water coming from uh, from under the earth. Right? First time it rained, water coming from above the earth. There is a theory, and again, this is a theory, uh, that there was some kind of um, water cloud, some kind of bubble, something that encircled the earth 
that was filled with water. We don't know this for sure. Can't start a new church over this and be so dogmatic. But but it said the water was from underneath. It hadn't rained yet. But it said for 40 days the rain fell. So the floodwaters came up. But it also says that they came down. So it's possible that there was some kind of uh, of thing covering the earth that was filled with water, and then God released it. Because again, we, we can't read the whole passage, but it says that the, the windows of the heavens opened. The windows opened up as if God released those waters. And what also makes sense in a way, if that's kind of the way God let it go down, was that for the flood, all that water, that canopy of water, if that's what it was, would have blocked out a lot of the harmful UV rays from the sun and allowed people and animals to live a lot longer and to grow a lot larger. Because he also mentions the Nephilim. We'll look at them in a minute. These giants. So again, conjecture, but it seems like something God could have done, of course, right? And would really check off a lot of boxes. But yet we do know the water came from above and from underneath. It rained uh, for 40 days. But then it can, the waters continued to rise for another 110 days. How about that? We don't even think about that. Yeah, rain, 40 days, 40 nights, but the waters continued to rise 110 days. If you've ever had flooding in your basement, you know the day after it rains, you see the water still going up. Like, boy, it stopped raining, but it's all in the ground, and the water is now coming up, seeing it needs a place to go. So that's what was happening for another 110 days, so more than three months. Almost four. So it says the water prevailed for 150 days. That's where it comes from. 40 days falling, 110 days continuing to rise. It lists the days of the month with lots of details. It happened on this day of the month, this day of the month. There was 40 days until Noah sent out the raven. We all remember about sending out the, the, the dove, right? First he sends out a raven. Then seven days till he sends out the dove. Another seven days he sends out the dove a second time to see if there is land, yet if the water has receded enough. Then another seven days until the third time. And after the third time sending out the dove, there was another month of waiting before he even removed the cover. Did you know that the ark was a convertible? Did you know that? It says he removed the cover. But that was a month after the third time he sent out the dove. And then finally... He took off the, they took off the cover, whatever that looked like, and there was another two months until he stepped out onto dry land. Why do I say all that? Because if you go back and read the chapters 6, 7, and 8, God spells it all out. All the details, the measurements of the ark, how, how tall the flood was, uh, how, how much water there was, and uh, how long it took specifically for all this to happen. You know, it even says, just as an aside, and we'll move on, it says that the flood waters were 15 cubits. That was a measure of, of uh, a length back then. 15 cubits above the tallest mountain peak. So why would that be? Well, when you have a large boat like that, any kind of boat, part of it is under the water, right? I mean, you're seeing what's on top, but there's a large part of it that displaces the water. It's underneath. Well, the ark had to be, um, it had to be big enough and it had to be tall enough and there had to be enough water to be displaced so that as the ark floated over the tallest mountaintop, it would clear it. Do you think God knew what he was doing? Yes, he did. That's how good our God is. It even tells us where the ark came to rest. God is a God of order and detail. That ark had to be strong to withstand the weight, the waters, the movement. I mean, listen, church, for anything to remain strong and stand the test of time, 
whether it's a civilization, we're reading about one falling, whether it's a culture or even just a large boat or even a building, something to remain strong and stand the test of time, it needs to be built on a solid foundation. God gives Noah all of the details he needed to build exactly what would have protected him and his family. You know, there's something else I think about when you talk about building something on a firm foundation. Look at this picture. Um, Do you recognize that one? The Leaning Tower of Pisa. Did you ever see that before? I'm sure you have. And so this is, of course, in Italy, in a province of Italy. It's called the Tower of Pisa, and it's uh, over 800 years old. And uh, they started working on it, and immediately, 800 years ago, by the way, and they started working on it, immediately they saw they had a foundation problem because of the soil. See, today, we have environmental engineers that go out and they test the soil. They make sure it's compacted enough. So whatever size uh, building they're going to build, that it will withstand that. And so I guess they didn't really take that into account because even the name Pisa, it comes from, it's Italian, but it comes from a Greek word which means marshy land. So I think they, they kind of like knew what, they should have known what was going to happen already. So there have been many attempts over the centuries to stabilize the foundation. And they've been able to do it, but listen, here's what's interesting. They have only been able to slow the progress, but not stop it completely. But here's the other thing. Do you know what that tower is? I didn't even realize this. We all see that picture. Oh, the Leaning Tower of Pisa. Do you know what it is? Look at the next picture. It's actually part of a church. It is the bell tower of the cathedral in the town of Pisa. So they were building it to hold the bell that would ring out, let everybody know it was time for church. Right? It was supposed to be a beacon of strength and of hope and to sound the alarm when there was a problem, to sound the bells to let everybody know the church is here, we are here to help you, but yet look at the reminder of it every time you see it. What it was meant to be, you follow me? What it was meant to be, but it was built on an unstable foundation. Church, that's what's happening here God had meant it for, be, for it to be perfect with Adam and Eve and his creation in the garden. But then, of course, that firm foundation became unstable the moment Adam and Eve disobeyed. The moment sin entered into the picture. The foundation for their whole civilization began to become unstable and crumble. Just like when we look at the Leaning Tower of Pisa as part of that beautiful basilica that beautiful cathedral in that town in italy it's part of a church meant to be an impressive structure to stand tall for all the town to see and reflect on the strength of of their faith but unfortunately it's now a constant reminder that even an impressive looking structure if built on a weak foundation cannot stand this tower will eventually fall genesis 1 through 5 shows us what it should have looked like by God's design, but then the creeping in and spreading of sin, building on a faulty foundation, a self-centered civilization because of disobedience. So I want to take a brief look at four points from this passage, and we'll close with a a couple of ideas of application. All right. So the first thing, as we we read again through the first eight verses of uh, chapter 6, here's what happens when sin spreads. 
As sin spreads, think of maybe even uh, yeast. Often in times, um, sin is described as being yeast, and you put yeast in a lump, or even a little bit of yeast in a, uh, yeast in a lump of dough. What happens? It spreads and permeates and affects the whole thing, right? And so this is what happens when sin spreads. First, it distorts. That after sin distorts what God had made, what should have been perfect and good, it begins to disrupt. It distorts the image and the, the original plan of God. Then it starts to disrupt the, the outworking of that plan. And then eventually what happens is it destroys. So sin, it distorts, it disrupts, and then it destroys. But in this passage, again, we always want to end with a word of hope. There is a word of hope in verse 8. Sin is disarmed. It's disarmed for us. Yes, it, it, it distorts, it disrupts, it eventually destroys but then there is a glimmer of hope. So let's briefly go through that. So verses 1 and 2, sin distorts. Remember it said, When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God, I'll explain them in a moment, saw that the daughters of men were attractive, and they took as uh, their wives any they choose. There's a lot wrong with that whole uh, those whole two verses, isn't it? It shows us sin distorting. It's not the intended design for marriage. Remember Adam and Eve? God's intentional design for marriage and relationship? Well, it says that the um, there were daughters being born, of course. Of course, the sons of God saw that the, daughter, the daughters of men were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Men, is that how you chose your wife? You just walked in and said, I choose you. Right? Maybe some of you have that story. I don't know. But it says... It says that they took for any they chose. Here's what it's saying. It's saying this is not how God designed it. They saw with their eyes what they wanted, and regardless of the consequences or what was supposed to be, they went and they took what they saw. It was not the intended design for God's institution of marriage. Do we still have a problem with that today, church? Do you ever read Romans 1? Paul talks about people exchanging the truth for a lie. Right? He talks all about sexual immorality. Evidently, sexual sin is a foundational issue to any civilization. Can we argue against that? Because even sexual sin, sexual immorality, you know, whenever you see a list of sinful behavior or sins in Scripture, it always seems to start with some kind of sexual immorality. Do you ever notice that? If it doesn't start with it, it is always a part of it. Because it says that they chose whomever they wanted. See, this is an important uh, concept. Only God can create. Satan distorts. Let's make sure we understand that. Satan does not create. He is not God. God is the creator. God creates. Satan distorts God's creation. See, that's his plan. He knows he can't create anything, but he'll take what God created and he will try to distort it in the hearts and the minds of men and women... So that God's original image is tainted and his original plan is thwarted. First John 2.16 talks about the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. Right? They are not from the Father but from this world. Think about that. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Do you see those three things in what these sons of God did? 
They saw the daughters, hey, they're attractive, I'll do what I want. That is the foundation of the beginning of the fall of this civilization because sin distorts. So what God created to be perfect and good is now becoming distorted. But the second thing is, sin not only distorts, it then begins to disrupt. Verses 3 to 5. So the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. So whether that means he's saying men won't live to be more than 120 years, or he's just kind of saying it's going to take 120 years until I bring the judgment. I think we can make a case for either one, meaning 120 years until um, the flood actually comes from that moment. Either way, God is putting a limit on what is about to happen because that's how good and merciful he is. But then it says in verse 4, this is really interesting. This is probably all what you wanted me to get to anyway. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. Okay, who were the Nephilim? Well, I think the disappointing answer for all of you is we don't know. But you don't want to hear that, right? So I'll give you some, I'll I'll give you some ideas. Some people think that it was the mixing of the line of Cain and the line of Seth. You can make some kind of biblical case for that. That it was the sons of Cain who were, again, we saw their line being, right, disobedient and and that, you know, passed, being passed down or the sons of Seth who said they're the ones that started to seek after God, right? And, and some people say, oh, these, the sons of God, uh, the, these were, and then uh, the Nephilim were the, the, the offspring uh, of sort of the, the line of Seth and the line of Cain. Not sure that's the case. I, I think the, the, the most common belief with the strongest biblical support is that they are, the Nephilim are the offspring of angels, fallen angels, who left their abode, I'll show you some scriptures about it, cohabitated with women, with earthly women, and then was born to them the Nephilim, or giants, this race of half-angel, half-man. Now that sounds crazy, doesn't it? It sounds like science fiction. Well, why wouldn't we believe it to true if God, if God tells us so? And here's a couple of reasons to believe that. I want to finish reading this, these verses and then explain that, okay, and we'll move on. So the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and afterward, when the sons of God, so there it talks about them again, came into the daughters, meaning cohabitated, so they slept, they had sex with women, right, the daughters of men, and they bore children. So these Nephilim, these giants, were the children, evidently, of fallen angels, demons we might call them, right, taking possession of earthly men, because angels don't procreate, okay, you got to follow me here, a little theology, Angels don't procreate. Jesus said there'd be no marriage in heaven. The same amount of angels that God created, the same amount of angels we have today. So how did angels uh, sleep with the, the um, you know, daughters of men? Well, they would have possessed, taken possession of men, like real men. So it would have been the fallen angels leaving their abode as part of their fall, their disobedience in doing that. And I'll show you why. But anyway, uh, it's the most common belief with the strongest biblical support that these sons of God were angels, fallen angels, who cohabitated with the daughters of men, and their offspring were the Nephilim. And it says that they were uh, they were considered the um, the men of renown and the the men of old because they were great and big. They are the product of distortion. See, sin distorts, and then it starts to disrupt God's plan. So it says, God says, His days shall be 120 years. Why? Because God is merciful. Look, He's merciful and He's slow to anger. He's long-suffering, but He is still judged. See, God is love. 
and God is judge. He, it's, it's two sides of the same coin. God is love, therefore he must be just and judge. And God is just and he judges because he is loved. You see that? Because at some point, God must judge. Even after being merciful and long-suffering, he lets men live 120 years. Whether it's their average lifespan after the flood or it's until the flood comes, he gives them time to repent. So you can write these down in the margins if you want of your Bible. Talking about these Nephilim or the sons of God. Uh, Job 1.6, Daniel 3.25, and there are many others. Listen, it refers to the sons of God as angels. In fact, in all the Old Testament, every time you see the phrase sons of God, it's talking about angels. That's why I think it seems to make the most sense that here in our passage, the sons of God are angels, fallen angels, demons, who cohabitate with the daughters of men, and their offspring are the Nephilim. Now, if you saw that awesome, awesome movie Noah with Russell Crowe, did you see that? Some of you did. The Nephilim, I'm joking by the way, I'm being sarcastic. The Nephilim were big rock monsters. You see that? If you saw that movie, you're like, wait, okay, that's the rock monsters? Yeah, the Nephilim. That's who it was supposed to be. Alright? And so anyway, uh, that's I think the best understanding of who they were. Because it got a little confusing. A lot of people get hung up on there. But I think the overall truth is still clear that this was not natural and not as God intended. Does that make sense? Because sin distorts and then it starts to disrupt. Satan is always attempting, church, to negate God's power and influence and and to stop the coming Messiah. So wouldn't it be just like Satan to send some of his demons... To, to cohabitate with women, to create this sort of big giant race, men of renown, men of old. Why? To usurp influence, to have demonic influence in the world, and hopefully, of course, in Satan's distorted view, to stop the coming Redeemer that God had promised would come to destroy him and defeat him. See? So Satan is doing anything he can to stop God's plan. Anything he can. That's why he will make us nervous. That's why he will, he will bring us to be too fearful to share the gospel, to share our faith with somebody, because Satan is putting those lies into our head. Oh, they're going to make fun of me, or they're not going to understand, and I'm going to trip over my words. Why? Because Satan is doing all he can to distort God's plan to bring salvation to the world. And part of that is the sons of God and then the Nephilim. Because the world, of course, would they not then start to trust in and admire and even worship these giant men as authority and forget about God? Satan will do all that he can. And then sin destroys. It distorts. It disrupts. It destroys. Verses 6 and 7. So the Lord regretted that he made man on earth and it grieved his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I even made them. That doesn't sound like God, does it? Like God's sorry, like he made a mistake? Well, if we understand God, we know theologically God cannot make mistakes. He cannot be not true to his self and his own nature. What does it mean? I think the word grieved is really important in verse 6. God saw what was happening, and he didn't say, boy, I made a big mistake. It grieved his heart what had happened. 
And he was sorrowful. Sorrowful to the point of saying, look, I cannot believe what my beautiful creation has become. And therefore, I will wipe them out and start all over, including the animals. Remember, he gave man and woman dominion over the earth. You follow me? And over the animals. And so they're going to go right along with them, unfortunately. Because all of creation was tainted by the sin. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is what? It's death. See? It destroys. The wages of sin, the outcome, the eventual outcome of sin is death. It's destruction. God was sorrowful and grieved at what had become of His beautiful creation. But then finally, church, as as I close us here, you know, there is a ray of hope because sin not only... Um, distorts, it, it disrupts, it destroys, but it says in verse 8, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Sin is disarmed by God. The one who allows it can disarm it. What do I mean by that? Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Isn't that great hope? It's kind of like when, when Moses tells us that the line of Seth began to seek after God. It's like, wait, there is a little bit of hope here. If you remember from when I was reading, I hope you caught this, but I want to go back and and read this to you. It says um, in Genesis 6, it says, um, I want to make sure I get this right. Oh, verse 5. Can you listen to verse 5 again? The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent, listen, the every intention of the thoughts of his heart, was only evil continually. Can you believe that? What we are hearing is that God surveyed all that had become of his beautiful creation and all that he saw, that every thought, every intention of every person's heart was only evil all the time. That is pervasiveness. That is the wickedness of sin, and how um, insidious it is and how it spreads. But yet, with God, there is always hope. Noah had found favor in the eyes of the Lord. There is always a remnant, church. There is always a remnant. Those who are called righteous, read Hebrews 11, you'll see it. Those who are true believers, Noah and his family, were considered righteous. They were obedient to God. Judgment can be a hard concept for many, right? Because God is gracious and and compassionate, but He's a gracious and compassionate judge. There will be judgment for sure. That's what He's saying with the flood. But God provides a way. He told Noah to build an ark. took him about a year. He said, there will be a flood. But yet, there was an opportunity for rescue and hope. So sin distorts, it disrupts, it leads to destruction, but it can be disarmed by God. Sin has corrupted the foundation. We need to build on a new foundation. But listen, it's a foundation that God provides for us. And that is what we call salvation being rescued from the consequences of our sin nature. 
You see, we are born with this sin nature. It is an unstable foundation because the wages of sin are death. It leads to death, spiritual death. But God says, here is a new foundation for you to build your life upon. Spiritually, I can make you new. I can give you a new, solid foundation built on myself. I am the rock. I can make your footsteps firm. We would do well to pay attention to what Jesus said about this. Do you know that Jesus talked about the flood? Matthew 24, 37 to 39. He said, For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days which were before the flood... They were eating and drinking, they were marrying and giving in marriage until that day Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So shall the coming of the Son of Man be. You know what he's talking about there in Matthew 24? He's talking about the end of the Great Tribulation. I don't believe we're in the Tribulation now. That is a seven-year period coming after, praise God, I believe, the rapture of the church. We won't be here for that, but it doesn't mean things can't get bad for us. And it doesn't mean things won't get worse all around us. We're seeing the trends of it. But Jesus in Matthew 24 is saying, this is what it's going to be like even at the end of the tribulation. All the people that become believers during that time and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ are going to be telling all the rest of the unbelievers, it's time to repent because Jesus is coming back soon. He said, you won't know the hour. And Jesus says it's going to be like it was in the days of Noah. Why? For those hundred years, listen, that he was building the ark, what did it also say? It said that he was preaching righteousness. It says that elsewhere. He was preaching righteousness. He wasn't just building an ark. He was building an ark and telling anybody that came by to mock him, here's what's going to happen. Be obedient to God and you can come with us. See, there was always hope. There was always an option. There was always an opportunity to be rescued. And he was giving them that ray of hope. And Jesus is saying, you know what? At the end of the tribulation time, when I'm about to come back to set up my kingdom, it's going to be just like that. People are going to think everything's great. Oh, they're they're having parties. They're giving a marriage and doing their own thing, living their lives. And then all of a sudden I'm coming back and it's going to be too late. That's what he's saying. These things are going to be just like the days of Noah. That's what it was like in those hundred years leading up to it. He's building his ark. He's preaching righteousness. And people are going about their lives as if he's just a crazy man building this huge ark for a flood they didn't even understand. What do you mean? Flood? Rain? Water? What are you talking about? Are we willing to trust in God and to trust in Jesus? Second Peter 3 says this. I'm just going to read it and bring us to a close. So Jesus talks about the flood. Uh, Peter talks about it. He says, this is the second letter I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days, scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, Hey, where is this promise of His coming you were talking about? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. That's what people would say. I want to stop right there for a second. you see what he's saying? Peter's saying, people are going to say, I thought you said Jesus was coming back. Where is He? Where is this rapture thing? Everything's just going on just as it always has for millions of years, they would say, right? Nothing's different. 
Right here, Peter is saying that to us. That's what it's going to be like. Verse 5, For they deliberately overlook the fact that the heavens existed long ago, the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, meaning water, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. He's saying people have forgotten about God's judgment and the flood. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist, Peter says, are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction and the ungodly. I won't read the rest of it, but do you see what he's saying? He, just like Jesus said, in the day it's going to be like with Noah, he's saying, God destroyed the earth through flood. He says, now God is saving it up for destruction by fire. Next week, or in a few weeks, we're going to see the covenant that God makes with Noah. That he won't destroy the earth again through flood. But he didn't say he wouldn't destroy the earth again. So, the message for all of us, believers and unbelievers, make sure we listen to God's warning about the consequences of sin. Don't ignore the symptoms because he offers salvation and his is the only offer on the tables. On the table. Believers are to seek righteousness and glorify God. Unbelievers are called to believe. The foundation that Christ offers is a new one. It's a solid rock that will last forever. But it's only one that He can provide. Listen, we cannot build our own new foundation. God does for us. Civilizations come and go. But God endures forever. His word, our faith, it transcends generations and cultures and governments. His word clearly shows us why nations, why civilizations fail and fall. Why? Disobedience to God's design. But yet there is always a way for hope. There's a story of a man who lived in a house next to a river. And there was a heavy storm that And the waters rose and an announcement came over the radio that was urging locals to leave their houses before their homes were flooded. And so the man says to himself, no, I'm a religious man. I pray. God loves me. God will save me. So the waters rose higher and the The man was forced to to move to the second story of his house. And so a guy in a rowboat comes along and and he called out for the man, Hey, you there, come, come jump in the boat, I will save you. And the man says to him, Not necessary. I'm a religious man. I pray. God loves me. God will save me. Finally, his house was completely engulfed in water and a helicopter hovered over. And it, it let down uh, some. It let down a rope, and it said through the loudspeaker, the the pilot said, "Grab onto the rope, and I'll bring you to safety." And again, the man said, "I'm a religious man. I pray. God loves me. God will save me." Well, just then, a huge wave swept over the house, and the man drowned. When he gets to heaven. He demands to have an audience with God. Lord, he says, I'm a religious man. I prayed. I thought that you loved me. Why did this happen? What do you mean? Asked his heavenly father. I sent a radio announcement. A boat and a helicopter 
and still you didn't listen. What are you doing here? Are you praying? Are you looking for a sign from God as what you should do next? How God would rescue you? Let us remember His Word. He's already spoken to us and provided a way. Perhaps we just haven't paid attention. God was building an ark and providing a way of hope. And the people in Noah's day chose not to pay attention. You know, my wife Claudia and I and our family have been... um, dealing with something recently. So Claudia is from Honduras, and she was born there and uh, came over to this country many years ago. And she's still got a lot of family and relatives there. And and we don't hear a lot about this on the news, but I don't know if you knew, but about a week ago there was a, a large hurricane, ETA, ETA, that hit Honduras and caused massive flooding, catastrophic flooding. In this one area in northern Honduras, in this town actually where Claudia was born, San Pedro Sula, there's about a million inhabitants. And right now estimates are that 400,000 have been displaced from their homes because of flooding. And these are people, many of whom are already living at or below the poverty line. Go online, look at it. You'll see the devastating pictures. And so we have been trying to help, supporting, sending money to to her family. There's a church that we're getting in contact with that some of her relatives go to that we want to be able to partner with and say, how can we here in New Jersey help you? We know what it's like to have the floodwaters rise and damage our homes in this area. Don't we remember Hurricane Sandy? And so we've been talking to them and trying to tell them how we can support them, sending them money. Our church is graciously, uh, through our um, through our deacons, has decided we need to help them. And so we're going to help support this church financially because this church is then going to help so many other people in their community. They're making meals 24-7 in the church kitchen. People are doing it in their homes to just provide some rice and beans and food for people that are in desperate need. Go online and look at the pictures. But you know what, church? People need a ray of hope. God provided an ark. Now that flood was judgment. This flood is not judgment. This flood is just the results of a fallen world. It's the results of a na- of nature, of creation being tainted by sin. That's why we have things like floods and earthquakes and hurricanes. But church, did you know that there is another powerful hurricane on path to hit directly to this same part of Honduras tomorrow and Tuesday? Go look it up. So this area... And all of Honduras is getting hit, especially this area where our family is from. Inundated with feet, feet and feet of water. In some places covering homes. Completely destroyed. They are now looking for tomorrow and Tuesday for another hurricane to come and hit. The government had been decimated by COVID and all their resources used up so they couldn't even help the people from the first hurricane. And now there's another one coming. And I say, God, how is this even possible? Lord, will you have mercy? But God always provides a way, doesn't he? Most oftentimes, the way that God brings help and hope to people is through you. So be aware of how God wants to use you. God told Noah to build an ark. What's he telling you to do? How can you bring help and hope? Maybe it's somebody in your community. Maybe it's somebody, a neighbor, a family member. 
that God wants to use you to bring help and hope to. Jesus said, very simply, in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. See, Jesus is what we call, uh, a Noah is what we call a type of Jesus, meaning that he reflects in many ways um, the Messiah, the salvation. Because God used Noah to bring salvation, to save and rescuing for his family and all those animals. That God said there will be a remnant because you were obedient and righteous. Because remember, God had promised the Messiah. It was not Noah, but that promised Messiah to defeat Satan was Jesus Christ and him alone. And so he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. See, God is a gracious God. In Second Peter, Peter says he wants that none would perish. He didn't want anybody to perish in the flood. He doesn't want anybody to perish now. He is love, but he is also just. See, in the flood and during Noah's time, which was, the, which was because of judgment of God, we know that there had to be punishment for that disobedience. But he offered salvation. You know that he offers salvation to each one of us here. He offers the forgiveness of sin so that we can be reconciled to him, our Father. Jesus came the first time as Savior. He's returning as judge and then as king to set up his kingdom. We don't have to fear that since there is the offer of salvation here and now one way only in Christ Jesus today and the offer is simply to believe. To admit your sinfulness and your need for a savior that you cannot save yourself and believe in Jesus as the one true Messiah, the only way to be reconciled to God. When we accept that truth, that Jesus is who he says he is, that he did what he said he was going to do, and then trust that truth for our salvation, Scripture says that you are saved. That's the offer of rescue and redemption that's on the table for us today. We can learn a lot from the story of Noah and the ark and the flood, but let's not forget the consequences of sin that it distorts what God originally planned to be good, that it disrupts his plan for goodness and righteousness sake, that eventually it leads to destruction because the wages of sin is death. But with God, there is always hope. Tell yourself that over and over. Tell others with God, there is always hope. Because it said Noah found favor in the sight of the Lord. And we know how do we find favor in God's eyes spiritually? By accepting his son Jesus Christ as the payment, his life and death as the payment for our sin. That we may have a new foundation set for us by God, a foundation that only he can provide, a foundation that is stable and secured and one that we can have assurance of.